Hey, welcome back to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast. Uh, With you, as always, myself, Ryan McGee, here in Richmond, Virginia, and over in Southampton, England, our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you today? I'm good. (laughs) So this is Rocks Across the Pond. Uh, That was not myself or Jonathan. Uh, Jonathan, you want to tell everyone who that was? That was our super fan and uh, member of Team Sugden, Felix Price, who uh, I guess listens to all our episodes and thinks we're really funny. So he made that uh, to mock us, I guess. Uh, the only critique that I have is he didn't quite capture the nasality of my voice. He got you pretty good. He did. He, he has had like five years to study my accent. So, you know. And that is that's the that's the junior team that you coach, correct? Yes, that's that's the thanks I get for uh, all my hard work and volunteer time. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing that they listen to us. <laughs> that's true. It's it's well. Hopefully, they're learning a lot. This is a very educational program, uh, and we keep our E rating on iTunes, so that's all really good. Yeah, I'd, well, we do our best to do that. We do our best, yeah. So what on earth have you been up to? What have I, I've done like, well, since winning the mix, I've done like basically no curling apart from one little league game this week. Uh, I'm kind of winding it down. So in terms of the curling side of things, and we're just getting on Easter break here. So just working on a bit of writing, academic writing. So nothing, nothing too exciting from the curling front, but it's good to get caught up on work because that matters too. What sort of uh, interesting subject have you been writing about? I am working on a book project on the political philosophy of Stanley Cavell that I would be happy to talk with you about for hours, but I'm sure none of our listeners would be interested in that. Can you at least just tell me who that is? He, I, so he actually passed away this year. He's an American philosopher. Um, kind of a major figure in aesthetics, which is kind of the study of value and art and beauty and judgment, but also had some interesting things to say about politics and democracy and kind of how, uh, how a community constructs itself. So uh, the book's kind of looking at those themes in his work. All right. When's, uh, when, when can we expect it um, to be available on Amazon? Uh, probably... I'm not sure. I mean, I'm kind of taking it slow. So probably sometime 2020, 2021. So a little while away, I'd say still. All right. Looking forward to it. You're you're going to buy it. (laughs) It's not a promise. (laughs) Do I get an autographed copy? I I would autograph it. I think you'd be shocked at, if you go to Amazon and look at how much my previous two books cost, like anyone listening to this can go do that. You'd be shocked at the price, I'm sure. And, well, it's because uh, you have to buy it for classes, right? I remember how much I paid for textbooks 15 years ago. Oh, God, was it 15, 15 years ago? Yeah. Um, I can only imagine what they cost now. Well, it's just like the runs are so small. So for like an academic book, you're probably making 500 to 750 copies of it. And uh, at that level, the production costs are really high. So that's basically the scope of your market. So 
So it's a collector's item. It, it is a collector's item. There still are copies of my first book available if you want to part with a hundred bucks. So, you know. Well, here, <laughs> and I'll autograph that too. <laughs> well, while you're winding down your curling season, ours got started here. So we had our first league night was Thursday. I did not play because no one needed a sub. And then last night, uh, we had a pretty good learn to curl here in Richmond. The, we had two sessions. The first one was pretty much sold out. The second one, about half as many, but um, pretty good. Uh, a bunch of people who are probably going to join the beginner league. So that's, that, was, that was promising. So are you still getting a bump a year on from the Olympics? or No, I think it's just word of mouth has spread from um, from what we did last year. So I, I think we're just trying to, to ride the momentum. Um, I think we as a club got pretty good at running, learn to curls. If I do say so myself, uh, last year when we were running as many as we were during the Olympics. And I think people are just telling their friends. That's what I, uh, pretty much everyone. I, I, I try to ask everyone that I teach, Hey, how'd you hear about us? And it's always either I Googled curling or a friend told me to, that they had to come try this. So that's been, that's been good to hear. That's pretty cool. And are you, uh, so what's your membership like now at the club? Gosh, I don't know. I haven't been, I'm also not on the board. I've, I've specifically told them that I do not want to be on the board because I was on the board in Oklahoma city before I left. And I just told them, look, if you need any help with marketing or getting the word out or anything like that, I'm your guy, but I have done my time (laughs) as far as being a board member that and with, uh, that and with the kiddo coming here, gosh, four weeks from now, um, I'm not going to, I, yeah, I'm not, I'm not involved. I show up and I teach, but, um, we, I do know, uh, so our, our league just started on Thursday and it's full. So that's great. And then the beginner league is getting, probably getting close to full now, I hope. But so that's, that's good. The fact that, they sold out the league. They did nine, I think nine teams of four. So each, each week, someone's got a, someone's got a bye week. So I think, I think that's a pretty good sign that we're hopefully keeping the people that we recruited during, during the Olympics and keeping the momentum going. And so where were you guys when you got there before the Olympics? Like what what was the size of the club back before? Oh gosh, it was tiny. We were, when I, first started, you know, we, we'd have designated league nights, but then, you know, whoever showed up, we kind of would just divide into whatever teams worked. Like sometimes you would have, you know, three sheets of teams of three. If you had enough to have two sheets with four, four person teams, you did that. You just, um, you know, made the the worst was if seventeen people showed up. If seventeen people showed up, you're kind of hosed. You can't really do anything. So that was that was always the worst. Um, but yeah, you you try to have you try to keep teams intact to keep the league. You know, to keep the structure of the league. But it was a lot of, hey, if you show up, we're gonna get you on the ice somehow. That's good. I mean, I think that's the key for an arena club, right? Is just if you can hold membership pretty steady during the course of the Olympic cycle and really try to grow the club uh, during the Olympic year. That's, that's really the kind of path to sustain growth. So it's good to hear you're still getting people coming out and sounds like you're still getting a little, 
little kind of positive growth, right? You're still picking up members, not just trying to replace uh, members that you lose through attrition. Yeah, exactly. And it looked like uh, last night at the Learn to Curl, it looked like there were a couple of faces that, you know, weren't there uh, last year who are back. So um, things, things are looking good for this club, man. I'm, I'm happy about it. It's good. I'm hoping that some. I'm hoping a similar thing's going on across the U.S. That really, and I, I know that's basically when we started this podcast, we were talking about that. But really, like I always said, the two countries that if curling takes off there, it really is a game changer. Is the U.S. and China. And so if the U.S. can parlay, kind of the bump out of the out of the Schuster Gold into you know way more arena clubs, but then hopefully eventually way more dedicated clubs. Um, and kind of you got basically a, a dedicated curling club in every major metropolitan area, then I think that's a real game changer long-term for the sport of curling. Yeah. And so we're, we're doing our part. All right. So speaking of team Schuster, how much of the worlds did you get to watch? We're recording this to kind of go over what just happened with the men's worlds. How much, how much curling did you get to watch this last week? Uh, I, I guess I actually got to watch a lot last weekend and then the Monday draws and then Friday, Saturday, uh, that's it. <laughs> so okay. it's always my, so my problem is always the time shift, right? So, yep. uh, the evening draws being in Alberta, um, that's, I think they start at 1am for me. So I can't stay up till, I can't spend the whole week staying up till three, four in the morning watching curling as much as I'd like to. So I missed all the evening games, but the after the morning draws worked really well because that was afternoon, kind of four or five o'clock. So I could kind of just you know nip off work a little bit early or kind of catch this the last half of the game. And then I try to catch the evening games, but even those are going up to midnight. So sometimes when I had to get up early the next day, I just would cut out. But it was uh, you know so I thought overall pretty good week and. Uh, Got to watch it. I didn't get to see every team play, but I, I tried to watch as many teams as possible. Because like the WCF feed here, which we get through YouTube, most draws they had two games going. So yep. you kind of pick your draw and I'd kind of you know try to flip around and see what's going on. So I have to, I have to say the quality of the world curling TV just over the last few years has really jumped up. So it's just, I'd say right now it's just a notch below kind of a, a full on TV broadcast. So you're not really losing anything by streaming these days, I'd say. Oh no, not at all. And it's, it, I think a lot of that is because I think TSN now pulls the WCF feed and then you've got, um, and then you have Vic and all them basically talking over the WCF feed. I think that's what they do now. It sounds like the, the one thing that's kind of funny is you can hear through the WCF feed some but a secondary commentary team, and I'm not sure who it is sometimes, but I'm not sure if it's the other WCF team, but you can kind of hear a little commentary in the background. So it's quite clear there's a booth there with multiple commentators going on, whether it's TSN or uh, the other commentator feed. I'm sure there's a lot of people using the similar kind of feed. So that's that's kind of, I think, a really good development. And um because I've watched it on YouTube, I get to see all the comments. And one of the things that's interesting is you can see all these commentators popping up. And it's really amazing to see how global the viewership is. Like there's a lot of Asian viewership, a lot of Russian viewership, uh, you know, fair bit of European viewership too. So it's definitely pulling people in from all over the world, which is also a good development. All right. Was there anything that stood out to you as you were watching games this week? 
uh, I mean, lots of things stood out. Um, I'm not sure what order we want to go in. Um, I, I mean, just in just in general, was there anything that you said? How did uh, you know watching this event? How did the five rock rule kind of change things in your from your perspective watching these games? So the one thing I want, I'm desperate for, and this is almost like a plea if someone has the numbers who's listening is I want to see a breakdown of what the analytics say about being one up without hammer in five rock. Is it different than four rock? Cause I think by the end of the last cycle, you know, Jerry Gertz and uh, the curling analytic guys like Kevin Palmer, and the, the, all those guys and Jason Gunlickson, you know, had pretty clear evidence that the right thing to do is actually be leading uh, by one without hammer was the favorable position as opposed to being down one with hammer. It's clear to me that all the top teams are doing everything in their power if the game's close to have hammer no matter what. Even sometimes often be down two with hammer. And that is something that we will definitely talk about later when we get into what happened with the U.S. at this event. But yeah, they they desperately wanted hammer um, in the last day. Yeah, and so the, the, the curling analytics thinking is I think it's like 60, 65% one up without under four rock and mm-hmm. that seems to have gone. And I think the thinking there was basically you you force one in ten, and then the extra you have hammer. And it seems like with five rock, a yeah. lot of teams think they can now generate a two or even a three in a lot of cases. And that that happened. Yeah. We saw that happen in the bar final. We saw Lewitt do it. Um, so it's definitely like a small sample size. So I want to actually see, do the analytics bear that decision out? And I'm sure we'll eventually kind of get those numbers uh, kind of over the off season, maybe, or eventually whoever's holding on to it, that'll leak out. But I'm sure that, well, we know for a fact that the Schuster squad works with uh, the curling zone guys on analytics, as does Hasselberg. And both those teams at different points have kind of opted for that strategy. So I'm wondering if five rock has scrambled at least that little bit of analytics. Yeah, I think it definitely did at the beginning of the season, but now that we're at the end of the season, we're seeing the top teams definitely opt for being down one and sometimes even down two with Hammer in in the last end, whether that's eight or ten, as opposed to being up without. I think that's uh, I think it's a, a pretty clear and definite change based on how teams in really the the big four tournaments of the season of champions the uh, scotties the briar and the two worlds you know it, it was pretty much to a team choosing to be down with rather than be up without yeah for sure so that's an interesting development i think the, the other thing so we talked a little bit about this in the women's review i, I don't think the world men's is yet a stronger field than the Briar, but it's pretty close. Um, you know, definitely there's an argument to be made that Korea is stronger than Nunavut. There's, there's probably no doubt about that. But I still think with the men's side, there's a pretty big separation between the top seven teams and the bottom six, right? Both in terms of the standings, that after, if eight on down had eight losses or more, but also just watching the games over the course of the week, it was, you know, certainly a bottom half team was capable of pulling off an upset, but the the difference is still pretty significant between the the top teams, which were a, lo- a lot of them were like top ten, top twenty teams in that top seven. The the exception being Italy, that we'll get to in a second, and then the other teams um, in the draw. So 
that kind of separation I think matters. And I don't th- having watched the whole week, I don't think the caliber is quite at Briar level. Certainly not championship pool play level, but not far off either. Like I think you know I could see by the end of this quad, um, you know the world's being 12, 10, 12 teams deep in terms of having slam quality teams on the ice from start to finish, which I don't think is quite the case yet. And then my other question before we get into the final and then our team by team breakdowns with five rock, do corner guards matter anymore or do they exist solely for run backs and in offs? Uh, I think they do. I think, it's it definitely is a case of a lot more play to the center, and that's I'm not sure if I was super surprised by that. Um, where it does tend to matter is if mid game your team's down by a bit, and the other team's going to drop its stones into the rings. You definitely do see teams throw up a corner guard or even two corner guards and try to build something on the sides before attacking the middle to try to generate a deuce that way. So corner guard still matters a way to kind of generate a two or a three if you have, if you're trailing. But if it's a close game, I think basically all the play goes to the middle. So that's kind of where it's still there. But I do think that the five rock matters in this sense that it's harder than normal to run away with a game. Like we're seeing a lot more close games and it's also whereas by the end of the four rock era, Teams got so good at the tick shot that basically, if you had a say a two a two or three point lead with Hammer, uh, it was pretty much over. That's not really the case with uh, with Five Rock, right? That uh, well, even like the even like the the three versus six game between Canada and Scotland, probably under Four Rock after Canada jumped to that kind of four one lead, um, under Four Rock it. Canada probably runs that away pretty pretty easily, but Five Rock allowed Team Moa to kind of generate a few opportunities to close the gap, score a two, get a four, score a two kind of thing, right? So that that's a lot easier still under Five Rock, but the corner guard play doesn't really come into play unless a team's got a big lead and the other team's off to dump all their stones into the house. The thing that I noticed this year was how good teams got at the tick shot this year because with five rock it became that much more important it seems like it was a thing that teams really focused on this last off season and throughout this year um so not only was it implemented more often but teams got a lot better at it um do you i and what i think might wind up happening is you might see teams start learning how to do that Ryan Fry shot that we saw from the briar a few years back where you freeze onto a stone that's been ticked and then hit it and try to roll to where you have um, a stone in the house on the center line with a center line guard. And I think that that might be the way to counter counter the tick shot is a short of them outlawing the tick shot to, to be able to play that shot is the way to yeah, it's. Po- I mean, it's possible. I think the Fry shot is well. Actually, Team USA was kind of eyeing up a possible Fry esque shot uh, in their semifinal against Japan, or their their uh, whatever they, we call the first round of playoffs against Japan. So, like, I think teams are certainly aware of it, but they also kind of shook it off, kind of saying it's too hard. We're just going to throw the guard up and hope again for the nose hit. So. Yeah. 
I, I'm not convinced that the fly shot's kind of going to become a bread and butter. The tick, to be honest, is not that difficult a curling shot. Um, like I, I think a, a decent quality club player can do a variation of the tick pretty easily if with like a little bit of practice and a little bit of teamwork. Um, I, I actually think club curlers under call the tick. I mean, maybe not Lisa Weagle-esque where like every single time you're hitting a quarter oh. and kind of rolling it perfectly over to the boards. But, you know, in club play, I'll, I'll occasionally call like a bump tick where you're hitting three quarters and trying to drive that, basically raise that stone back rings and kind of get a corner out of it. And that actually works, I'd say, 50, 60% of the time, which for club play is not not bad outcome. So, Well, in club play, you'll see it. It just isn't always on purpose. Yeah, I mean, the other way to play it is to play a come around with T weight and then broom it a little tight. And then if you, you don't squeak past the guard, you kind of tick the guard. That's the other way to play it. So it's not it, kind of like it's the plan B, but I, I guess Skip, who kind of knows how to call plan Bs, can kind of always capitalize on that. So I, I, to me, like the tick shots is kind of overrated in terms of how hard people say it is. It's, I mean, it's not, I'm not, I don't want to dismiss it. Like there's certain, there's certainly skill. I'm like being Weagle-esque doing it kind of shot after shot after shot, but it's not that tricky a shot. The factor of difficulty of kind of like jamming a stone off another stone, rolling your shooter back to center guard and rolling that under the center line guard. That's just like one of the sickest shots ever played. So I, I don't think that's going to become a staple shot. I think, I think if the tick continues to be a problem, the most likely outcome is going to be the uh, the slam rule being used to outlaw the tick shot. Basically, where they've if a stone's touching the center line during the free guard zone, you can't you can't bump it. Well, and then the fry shot's something that he obviously practiced, and it's not going to be something that people have been practicing so far. So it'll be interesting to see if that's something that elite teams focus on like you and I, well, maybe you, but I'm not going to be able to make that shot. But I mean, these guys are the best curlers in the world. If you let them practice it for a while, they'll get good at it just like they have everything else. Um, so Jonathan, your 2019 world men's champion is Nicholas Adine defeating Kevin Cooey in the gold medal game. Kind of a I don't, it, it was honestly, it was kind of what you figured the final was going to be for for most of it, with two skips that are so good at hitting that, you know, in in a game like that, you're probably going to play it close to the vest, and you're you're going to be early to bail, um, especially in a ten in game where you've got more time to generate your deuce, and it really it came down to an end where Dean was able to get a steal, uh, Kevin Cooey came up short on a draw that led to a, a, a steal of two that kind of, I, I mean, it basically swung the game. You kind of figured Nicholas Adine wasn't going to, wasn't going to cough up the lead after that. Um, what, what was your take on this final and where does Nicholas Adine uh, rank for you now in terms of all time, all time skips? So I, I, this game I think is actually pretty big. I was just thinking about it this afternoon. Um, it was, it's pretty. I would say that had Kevin Cooey won this game, you could make a case that Cooey was the dominant skip of this decade, right? With his first win in 2010, four Briars, that would give him two world golds um, and an Olympic appearance, so winning the Olympic trials. So that's a pretty kind of big chunk of, you know, silverware in his closet. But Adin beating Cooey gives him four worlds to go with all his Euro titles, his two Olympic medals. Uh, I, I think that this is the the Adine decade. 
right? And so and I think that in a certain sense, this game kind of decided that. And it was good, kind of good to see, you know, obviously two of the best skips of the decade go head-to-head in a world championship final. And at the end of the day, kind of a Dean came out on top. He's won, uh, what's he won? Four, four world titles in the last six years. Uh, and he's still not done doing what he's doing. I kind of admittedly in the preview podcast kind of written them off because they, they seemed a little off this year, to be honest. And they, they knew how to flip the switch when the worlds came around. And boy, they just rolled through the whole field. So hats off to them. And I'm naming this the Adeen Decade. All right, I'll, I'll buy that. I mean, four in six years is, I mean, you can't really you can't really argue with that in terms of it being his decade. And I'd, I'd kind of, I kind of agree with you. If Cooey had won, then you could, you could make the same argument for Cooey. But now that Adine has four, um, it's tough to make an argument against him. The only thing, the only thing for Cooey is he's not there every year and Adine is, right? Yeah, I think, I think you give the pushback, right? That's the, that's the classic kind of pushback because you got to win the Briar, whereas Adine's selected by the Swedish Academy. So he gets to go every single year. So that's why I would be willing to kind of buy had Koo won. Um, that you know, Koo had the better decade, but yeah. So had Koo won, this would have been his third win. So he would have had as many as a Dean and three out of four appearances. And I think that would have you know the fact that he's got to go to the Briar, whereas a Dean's there every year. You kind of and you kind of look at all of kind of Koo's other hardware over the last decade. You'd probably give it to Koo. Right, even though they'd be equal on world championship titles, but because it was a head-to-head, because now it's four worlds to two worlds, and you know because you can add in Adine's Olympic hardware, his silver and his bronze, and Cooley came up short at the at the last Olympics, kind of in head-to-head in big events, Adine's kind of kind of beaten Cooley out by a nose, right? So not that Cooley's you know a bad curler, but I think it's it's definitely been the Adeen decade. I don't you know the only thing really missing from Adeen's kind of title belt now is a gold, but you know two Olympic medals is nothing to sniff at either. And you know he's pretty good shot that it'll be there twenty twenty two, and uh, you know at least right now an early favorite for to medal there as well. So oh definitely um, yeah. And, they, and yeah, that's the thing. It's been said before, he really has nothing to worry about. Unless something really drastic happens, he knows that he's going to be at the Olympics in 2022 and the the pressure is on elsewhere, really. Yeah, like the, there's no guarantee this Kui team makes, you know, gets out of, the, out of Canada by any stretch of the imagination, right? Whereas Adine, unless there's an injury, and he, does, he has had back surgery a few times, so you always kind of worry about that. That's, I think, the only thing that would stop him is an injury at this stage from getting to the Olympics, so... Uh, and that's a pretty big thing. I think you'd be hard pressed to to kind of name another time in world curling history that a non Canadian team has dominated a decade like that. Yeah, that's true. And uh, also, three of Adine's championships have come on Canadian soil. That was noted uh, during the broadcast yesterday. Yeah, so he's you know the other ones in the U.S. So he likes North America, I guess. When Cooley's at the Briar, he's normally a lock for the playoffs. The only year I think he missed was his first year with uh, kind of Kennedy Lang, Hebert iteration of his team. So uh, they'll be dangerous again next year. They, they have a decent shot to repeat the Briar. There's certainly, you know, three or four other teams I'd say that have will have something to say about that. But 
Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. So Cooney is not a great money player, I'd say. Like he's only one of the weird, I've been looking at his profile a lot and kind of checking these things out for the podcast. So Cooney's only won five grand slams in his career. That's still right? nothing to sneeze at. I haven't won any. No, but it's, you know, like he's won five and his first one was the players when he was with Johnny Moe and Mark Kennedy back in 2004. And then, you know, he's not like, he's not like a team like Gushu or even McEwen that kind of seems to win one or, or Jacobs. It seems to be like a lock to win one every year. I think he's, he's the, he's kind of really far more motivated by the, the kind of playing for glory rather than playing for gold. But, and so I think that he'll be definitely dangerous next year when it comes to, comes to the briar. And I think I've said, like I said, during one of our podcasts, I fully expect that those final four teams that we saw at uh, the briar this year with the kind of obvious shakeup on the Jacobs team, I fully expect all four of those to be at the roar of the rings uh, in three years time. So Cooley, pretty sure Cooley will be there. So going back to that end that kind of changed everything in this game, it was Kevin Cooley coming up short on a draw. That's, is that, the, is that basically the only hope you have is hope that Cooey misses somehow force him to make a draw and just hope that he hope that he misses because all of his highlights are throwing takeouts with five seconds left on the clock to the win is that is that kind of the key is hope that you catch him on a on a day where his draw weight is just a hair bit off uh I I mean I, I'd say there's two <laughs> it's, it's absurd to talk about flaws in Cooey's game but I'd say there's two weak points at least, right? And so one is as great as it as it is to watch quadruple takeouts and you know cross ice in offs to the button, spectacular shots all week, right? The question is why is he throwing so many of those? And part of it is he does play an aggressive style of play, but part of it, to be honest, is this iteration of his team was not as strong, I think, as the kind of as the Lion Kennedy kind of mid-ring partnership and to be honest it was at least during the worlds it was colton flash seemed to be the one who was was kind of likely to miss something so the question there is because i haven't seen enough of them play all year to know if, if it's just the case of this is flash basically being a rookie at kind of this level so is it just rookie nerves and as he kind of continues on with the cooey team he'll be able to to raise his game to to that kind of 90 percent level that cooey's used to or is or is he potentially a weak spot in the lineup that then generates the pressure that even Kevin Cooley, if you're always having to throw ridiculous shots, eventually you're going to miss. And then, you know, I, I think he's a really good drawer. He's made a lot of really good pressure draws over the years. So you don't want to kind of discount that. But you know, he's also missed his fair share of draws, and part of that is a lot of a lot of curlers are. If you're going to at that level, elite curlers, if the, if you're going to get them on a miss, it's going to be on a pressure draw, right? It's going to be the the stress getting to you and uh, making you either gas it a bit or perhaps overcompensate and pull the pull the string. So, you know, there's very few elite curlers that are 100% in draws. I'd say the the one of the worlds who was just money whenever he needed draw weight and has been for years is Benoit Schwartz. He's he's a touch master. Uh, Kuhn's always been more of a power player. So, you know, the draw game's, you know, still really good by anyone else's standards, but probably the, the weaker part of his game for sure. And then you said, you told me offline that you had some thoughts on the handles and the, the issue that we saw with, with those. Yeah. So, I mean, a few things. So, so one, it's interesting. I mean, there's nothing 
to say about it, but the fact that it's interesting that the two the two finals that Cooey's big finals that he's lost this year both involve technology issues. So the first one was the clock issue at the Canada Cup, right, where they they were trying out that new timing system, but part of it was also just the technology wasn't working all that well, or the technology, to be frank, was just not up to the rules, in my opinion, anyway. And then here was the handles. Uh, it, it was a dean who was in a certain sense frozen out for that five-minute period where the handle's getting repaired. But then in the post game, and maybe it's just Ben Hubert kind of being Ben and you know blowing off some steam, but but he was adamant that Cooey threw the exact split they wanted. And you know, Ben Hebert's the you know one of the best leads in the world. So if he's saying that, he's you know, he's a pretty good judge of weight. So they threw what they wanted to throw and they fell up short. And their argument was because the ice had to sit for that long, it changed the speed of the ice, and that's what threw them off. And that that's actually true. Uh, especially for kind of large arena services, right? That the ice conditions do change if you stop playing. Um, so their concern is perhaps a little bit of frost kind of creeped up into the, the slide path and that may have slowed things down a bit. Uh, so it's certainly a possibility. Um, it, it does, the technology itself is actually pretty old now, right? Like it's 15 years old. And talking to WCF officials, they actually don't really like the handles all that much. Like they don't like having to do the hog line judging, but in events that aren't kind of what's like basically tier one WCF events. So things like the world mixed or the junior bees, like a lot of these other events, they actually opt to not use the handles because they find that technology slows the pace of play down so much because they're constantly having to fix handles and, re- and kind of repair them in different ways. So I guess one thing to ask is, is there a, a more reliable technology at this point in time? It's obviously kind of a niche demand for kind of curling handles, but it's kind of seen some new new kinds of curling technology pop up over the last few years. There's this product called Clutch Curling that kind of is sold to the club level curler that seems to be like a little bit more reliable. So the question is, could somebody, you know, come up with a more reliable system than this, this handle system that seems to be malfunctioning a fair bit? Well, maybe the, maybe the answer is instead of having the handles be the thing that lights up, have something on either end of the sheet that lights up if there's a violation and just use, just use, just use the eye, the same, the same technology that they use in tennis to determine if, well, I get, well, no, never mind. I take that back because you still have to have some sort of sensor on the handle to feel that their hand is on the handle, right? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, that's beyond my technical capabilities. I will say this, that a lot of sports now, like cricket, um, VAR, so video-assisted referee in football, uh, you mentioned tennis, right? There's a lot of these kind of pretty advanced laser-type systems that seem to be a lot more reliable. I'm sure, I mean, curling is obviously a more niche sport, which doesn't have the money of any of those sports, but certainly it's technologically possible to like they do in cricket, kind of figure out whether or not the the ball would have kind of run through the player and hit the wicket, which is a pretty kind of advanced thing to do, and use that to kind of make crucial decisions in cricket, then I'm sure you can do uh, something similar for what I think is actually a technically easier thing to do, which is tell whether or not the stone was released before the hog line. Yeah, thinking, yeah the, the thing tennis has, I think, is the best the best instance of technology improving the sport. Cause one, they get the call right. And two, it happens really fast. 
yeah. uh, way faster than any other sports when they're looking at a replay. Yeah, and so the fact that I can do that there, there's got to be some kind of technical way to do it for curling, right? You're, you're looking at something moving a lot slower than a tennis ball, and it's, just, <laughs> it's basically, is the hand still there or not? So I don't know how they do it, but there's got to be a way to do it. Yeah, there. I mean, there'd still have to be a sensor on the rock, but yeah, the battery technology I'm sure has improved more than than what they have on the stones right now. I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, moving on to the bronze medal game, I have nothing against Switzerland. I just thought it would be cool if the Pacific Asia region got its first medal, and unfortunately, we have the for the second straight year the PACC comes away with fourth. Last year, we saw Korea finish fourth. This year, Team Japan, who we thought they would impress some people, and they impressed a lot of people this week. They were almost the number two seed and almost had a buy into the semis, but um, did get sent to the qualification game where they beat the U.S. and uh, wound up finishing fourth, losing to Switzerland in that bronze medal game. Yeah, and re- a really impressive game and really impressive week for Matsumara. Like I, I was, I mean, a couple of things really impressed me about him. So first of all. Just he's got this intuitive sense of physics, of how the stones kind of react. There were a couple of times in that bronze medal game where I was like, I don't think that shot's there. Uh, the shot he made for three kind of early on in the game, like it was kind of this ridiculous kind of squib the stone off another stone and then roll it to biting the button, which requires both precision, really good knowledge of angles, and and wicked weight control because honestly, if he's a little bit heavy there, he could he could turn a, a guaranteed two into a one. Uh, so that was kind of a wicked shot. And then the last shot he threw didn't quite work out, but at least on my feed, the commentators and me, to be honest, were like, I don't think that's there. But it was kind of a double through the port, redirect the shooter through, and catch the back one take to kind of a triple takeout to to score two and. Uh, again, kind of he he understood how the stones would behave and had a better understanding of the angles, I think, than than a, than a lot of people who kind of know the game pretty well. So that was cool to see. And the other thing I really like is he's not like some skips are really by rote. Like they're like if we're up, we put the stone here. If we're down, we put the stone here. Uh, Matsumaro was kind of a change up kind of skip. Like he changed strategies up from end to end. And I think that's that's pretty clever. Like it, it, it can kind of throw your opponent off, especially if they fall into the trap of we're always going to do this. And especially with the five rock free guard zone, there's already a bit of that creep back to what we saw with the four rock where everyone calls the exact same shots. And Matsumoto was a lot more uh, experimental and creative, I thought, which was fun to see too. Yeah, then... The thing about this team, we we saw them do really well in the events that they entered this year, but it was mostly tier. It was mostly tier two events. We didn't really get to see them a whole lot against elite elite teams. Um, And this week was a bunch of games against elite teams, and they acquitted themselves quite well. I was very impressed by by that. That they were they played with no fear, and you know they're. Unlike the women's side in Japan, where it could be any number of four teams representing Japan at next year's Worlds, I think this team is a step or two ahead of the teams that are behind them. It'll be interesting next year. I'm pretty sure we're going to see Yusuke Morizumi back in the game uh, next season with a new team, 
Um, and I'm just basing that off of an interview I saw with him that it, it looks like he's going to be back next year. Um, but that'll be a new team and team Eway. They're, they're impressive. They make a lot of impressive shots, but I, th- I still think that they're, they're a step behind this team. Yeah, I mean, I think this team, in a certain sense, this performance was a bit like Bruce Mowat's performance at last year's Worlds, where it was kind of that breakout oh, yeah. performance where going into the week, maybe a lot of curling fans didn't know who that team was, like, unless you're kind of a diehard who you know spends all your life, life on curling zone. Um, and... Uh, you know, by the end of the week, everyone's like, "Oh yeah, that's a good team." And so, Matsumara has definitely kind of established themselves as a good elite world team at this event. And then, first year for the kind of revamped team to cruise, and they come away with a bronze. They were the number two seed going into the playoffs, and they kind of got cooed in the semifinal. But they did come away with a bronze medal. This is a team that. You know, you, you've said it before on this podcast, they were put together to win a gold medal, not a world gold medal. They were put together to win an Olympic gold medal and a pretty good start for them, even though it's, you know, quote unquote, just a bronze medal. This team played really good all week. And this team, um, you know, they, they did it to a couple teams. They did it to the U.S. in the round robin and they did it to Team Japan. They uh, they can find a way to, to drop a big number on you. And then all of a sudden the game's over. Yeah, I mean, Benoit Schwartz is, like, he's just so chill. Uh, he's not, like, he's not a power hitter in the mold of a Dean or Cooey, but he has, A, got amazing touch. Like, just, fin- like, the number of times he's, he'll draw to, not just draw to the button, but draw, like, to a certain spot and not even blink uh, is amazing to me. And then he, he's, again, a creative shooter. He's got this, like, the shot he made for four was not easy could have blown up in their face really easily. And it, was, it had to be thrown with like exactly the right weight, with like exactly the right line. And it, it was a game winner. He won the game just on that shot right there. And the rest of the teams, they really function well as a unit. They've got that lineup format that's quite frankly a bit, a bit screwy in my opinion, where you know, it, it doesn't really work all that well all that often. But this team, it works really well, and it's clear that they've got great chemistry, great team dynamic, great communication. And the other thing is you've got three people always pitching in, and unlike the Cooley teams that always seem to be kind of running the clock down to the last 10 seconds in a game, the DeCruz team always seems to have a fair bit of time left at the end. So really solid team dynamic side too, I'd say. Yeah, Benoit has... Uh has a very low heart rate is the way I'd put it. He is, he is, he is a cool customer. I guess the only thing missing for this team is Sven has to learn French. <laughs> it's kind of funny. I mean, um, it, it is, you know, with a country with five different languages, five different official languages, it is funny that their kind of go-to communication language is English. So, but it seems to work for them and uh, no problems there either, right? They're talking French, Swiss, German, and English all game long and seems to work well having a trilingual team like that. Well, that's what they said was um, the rest of the team speaks French and Sven is from the German side of Switzerland. So he came into the team and he's slowly learning French, but they all know English. So that it, it's funny to watch uh, Peter Cruz talk French to everyone else and then occasionally have to slip in English whenever Sven comes down to the house. Yeah, no, it works well. And Sven does kick in a, a fair bit of uh, like input too. So it's not like he's, mm-hmm. they're not just like marginalizing him because he doesn't speak the same language as the rest of the team. So 
it can work. I mean, I was I played in juniors on a team that was kind of mostly Quebecois, and my French is, you know, decent but not great. But we'd often kind of slip into a they'd say something in French, and I'd reply in English, kind of mode, and vice versa. Uh, so if everyone's kind of comfortable with that, it can work out all right. All right, and then the other two teams that qualified for playoffs, it's the U.S. and Scotland, which for you, it's basically Team Great Britain, and for me, it's the country that I live in. So they're the they're the two teams probably most uh, most relevant to you and I personally. Um, so Team USA, this it was it was an interesting week for this team. They started off with. A, a loss to the Netherlands. That one was not shown on TV or on the WCF feed. So I'm not really sure what happened in that game, but uh, so the U S started off with a loss, but then they came back and they started playing pretty well. However, toward the end of the tournament is where their game kind of started to falter. And they, it, as you've said before, it's not how you start, how you finish. And it looked like, as, as an observer of this team in this tournament, it looked like frustration levels were rising toward the end, and it kind of came to a head in that qualification game against Japan in the ninth end when a little bit of family dysfunction maybe came through with that team as they were discussing what to do with their last shot there in nine, and it eventually led to... John Schuster throwing away uh, his last shot to be down to with hammer. And we got a pretty good broom slam out of him. I think it would, that was just fr- frustration, like watching him and his mic being live and listening to him. Those last few games that they played in the week. I think that was just frustration boiling over and I'm not, I'm not really sure what exactly was causing it, but they obviously weren't, playing their best at the end of the week and, you know, being down to going into 10 isn't obviously the, the most ideal situation after they had a, a pretty good end uh, building up there in nine. Uh, what did, what did you notice out of this team? I mean, I th- yeah. So there's a team dynamic issue. I, I, I part of this, I guess is also just Schuster, right? Like he, he always has said what he thinks. Um, I think a lot of other curlers, when they know they're being on mic and they know they're on camera, probably cut back their behavior a little bit. They kind of self-censor. I think Schuster kind of always just says what he's thinking. That's kind of Schuster, right? He wears his emotions and his heart in his sleeve. He's not, he's not cooey ass. Like cooey is just, you know, the opposite end of the spectrum, if you will, like hyper introverted, kind of even keel with the emotions. John's a very extroverted kind of get the emotions out there, ride that emotional wave kind of player. And, you know, when it works and he's riding that wave really well, he wins gold medals. And when it doesn't, uh, we've all seen the other side of Schuster too, right? So that's part of it. I do think that, and I think you kind of flagged this a lot last podcast and having watched them this week, I do think that there's the, like, there's that tie, they're missing tie in a certain sense, right? He, he's just, he played the good role of being the bridge between Matt Hamilton and John Schuster. And I think, as you said last time, like Chris Plies just doesn't yet seem to be fully taking on the authority of being the vice. And in a certain sense, Matt Hamilton's kind of taking the second spot in the pecking order. And there could be good reasons for that. Like he's, at least in kind of international stage, 
significantly more experienced now. And he's got like a lot of history with John Schuster, but it seemed that at sometimes Matt was kind of a little too chirpy, right? And like every team's got to figure out what the right balance is between a front end giving a front end player giving you an input and kind of offering feedback and what's too much. But that seemed to me to me to be the big kind of team dynamic issue that popped up over the course of the week. Yeah, and it's I mean it might just be the new normal for this team because you know they have they have a very good coach in Don Bartlett. They have a director of coaching. I'm not sure exactly what Phil Drobnik's title, the official title is now, but he's kind of the he kind of coaches the coaches. But so they have him, who is obviously very familiar with that team and familiar with their team dynamic. They have a very good coach in Don Bartlett, and you know the none of them have have put the kibosh on it. So this might just be the new normal for this team. It might be what drives, it might just be the way that they operate now. And it, it might just be for better or worse when it's working. It, it really works. I mean, they had a pretty solid season on tour and they won the U S championship. And then just at the end of the week, they weren't playing their best. Yeah. And that, that happens too, right? Like you just curling's a streaky game especially at the top level that, uh, you know, you can, you can rattle off, we can rattle off 24 straight wins like Cooey did between the Alberta and the worlds. And then he dropped two in a row. And uh, so it happens to everybody. And so sometimes it's your week and sometimes it's not uh, losing in an extra end in a playoff game is not exactly a bad result. It's a pretty solid showing. Um, so the, the, nothing to be kind of, ashamed about i just think in the case of the world it's getting harder and harder every year and so performance like they had this week probably four or five years ago would have been good enough to get into a you know at least kind of clinch a top four semifinal spot but now with the all the quality of teams even kind of getting top six that's a pretty good performance so that's part of it too i think the only maybe issue from yeah, I think from watching this team, Matt definitely speaks his mind more this year, maybe without Tyler George in that lieutenant role. And, you know, I think Chris Plies does a great job of kind of counterbalancing Schuster. You know, Schuster, as you said, wears his heart on his sleeve, and that's what endears him to a lot of curling fans, including me. And Plies kind of counterbalances him by being more of the quieter guy. The only issue that might be from from Matt speaking his mind more and kind of almost having the vice role is when he a lot a lot of what he's saying will come from either the end of the ice so he's talking to John from 150 feet away or he'll be talking to Schuster in the hack when he's getting ready to throw and I'm pretty sure that Schuster is one of those skips that wants nothing said you know there's some people that when you get in the hack you want as much information as possible and there's some people that and I think you're the same way you get in the hack and you don't want to hear anything unless you ask for it yeah I think I'm definitely that way I think I I don't know about what Schuster's like it's it's hard to know um but I think most skips to be honest are that way so you know the the last thing I want to hear when I'm in my forward press is, oh, what about this shot, right? It's like you're mm-hmm. you're thinking about the shot you're trying to throw. You don't want somebody kind of second-guessing your call or putting some doubt in your mind or even saying something that might be well-intentioned. But like, like the, the classic is a don't statement, like don't be wide or don't be heavy. Mm-hmm. Like that actually in a weird way plants being heavy or being wide. So 
think of that again, that's a good tip for kind of club players. Think about what you're saying to your skip, or actually, quite frankly, to any player uh, when they're kind of in their pre-shot routine. I, I mean, it's one of those things we can't really know, right? Which, which no. curling is interesting to watch because you see how they behave on the ice. And we don't always know, well, we never know what the conversations are off ice. It could be that, you know, John and Matt have been playing together so long. It doesn't bother John at all that, that Matt's a pretty kind of vocal player. But it could be that that's an issue that's – because sometimes, to be honest, teams don't talk about uh, problems like that. And they just kind of let them fester or kind of sweep them under the rug. And they kind of pop up in the most high-stress moments that – when we're watching teams at these events, the stress tends to kind of make it their worst performance as opposed to their best. So maybe Matt's not behaving like that all season, but once you're on the world stage, perhaps how he responds to pressure is becoming more vocal like that. And that's perhaps something that the coaches got to think about too. Like this is not, they may play for the other 80 games of season a very different way, but just the, the, the pressure of being on TV, on a world stage, all that may also bring out different behaviors from your players too. And it'll be something that only time will tell as to whether we're just making a big deal out of nothing. Because as we said, no, none of their, none of that coaching staff really seemed to put the kibosh on it. So, and I imagine, I imagine if John Schuster really wanted to, he could put the kibosh on it. So, I, it may, it may just be a non-issue. It may just be something that crept up because things weren't, they, they you know, they weren't as solid at the end of the week as they were at the beginning, at the beginning of the week. Yeah, that's true. I mean, I, I think there are, you know, we, again, we don't know. We don't know if there's conversations had after the game, after that game in particular, or, uh, or either way, there could be, it's totally fine for input. It could be that the Johns trusts Matt's judgment a fair bit. And, you know, uh, perhaps more so than Plies because Plies is his first year on the team. We don't, we don't know, you know, what they've discussed. And it's hard to know without knowing that conversation, how the whole team feels about those things. And the, the, the most specific instance that, that I noticed throughout the week was the first Japan game, the Japan game in the round Robin. Um, they were, they were trying to get a force. Uh, John lined with his last shot lined up, uh, not, super easy relatively easy takeout but there were things that could go wrong with it um so he goes down and hamilton was trying to convince him to play a draw around a guard and john just kept saying no we're gonna play we're gonna play this um this takeout and even while schuster was in the hack matt kept talking about this draw and to schuster's credit like stopped his process and stood up and said okay i'll hear you out and then they talked about it as a team. They actually wound up playing the draw, um, made it perfectly, and for and got and got their force. But to to me, that was interesting. Was one you had Schuster while going through his process of throwing the shot, getting talked to by a front end player, and then having the presence of mind to stop his process and just say, "Okay, let let's talk it out." Yeah, that's actually good sports psychology. Like if you talk to a sports psychologist, one of the things they'll tell you is if you're distracted by something mid-routine, the right thing to do is to stop, reset, and do it again, right? And you see that with golfers too all the time, right? If they're in a big event and mm-hmm. cameras start flashing, the caddy will often tell them to reset. And you'll see them kind of step back and kind of completely redo their routine. And so Schuster kind of doing that there is exactly what you'd want to do from a sports psychology perspective. 
and I'll, I'll we'll use that as a lesson to some of some of our club players. If you're a front end player, unless you have won a gold medal with your skip, don't talk to your skip when he's going through his process. And if you're a skip and your front end player talks to you during your process, like hit the reset button, stand up and go through it again. Yeah, that's good advice, I'd say, for sure. All right. Jonathan, do you want to tell us what happened with Scotland this week? They uh, they had a very interesting week, uh, if I if I do say so. Yeah, I mean, uh, kind of an up and down week, right? They started off one and three, including a loss to the Netherlands, right? So you'd think they'd kind of be a considerable favorite over the Dutch squad. But then think for it, another, and just a quick aside for a Netherlands team that only won four games, they got some pretty impressive pelts throughout this week. Yeah, I, they're closing the gap. They are a young team, right? Some of them are still junior eligible. So it's not like we'll talk about the other young teams in this pool uh, kind of a bit later. But it's not like, like again, what international curling is right now, the Netherlands, are they're, they're ranked 30th in the world on the order of merit. They're not um, kind of a rollover team. This is not the world championships of like 10 years ago where the lower tier are just not, they're just there to play and they're not going to beat the, they're never going to have a shot against the best teams. But yeah. so, so Bruce Mowat, Bruce Mowat loses to the Netherlands starts when he gets, he gets yopped uh, and starts and starts one in three. And he's looking at being one in three going into a game with Nicodine. And then they pull it off. They got to, they got to win against Sweden to get back on track. Yeah, but that's not – I mean, to me, that's not – that shouldn't be a surprise this year, right? Like they beat Sweden at the Euros final. So they beat them kind of in the, the biggest European stage. So they're fully capable of beating Adin. And I'm sure Adin did not go into that game thinking, oh, this is going to be an easy game against some young kids. He knows full well at this point that this is a, a top-quality team. So they, they were able to turn it, turn the week around – and kind of close really strong, right? So they won. They they basically had to win all of their last four, and they did that, mm-hmm. and they got into the, the playoffs. And you know that that three versus six game against Cooey was was a really good game. Comes down to the last shot. Now it had a shot to win, not an easy shot, but he and he just missed it. But um, you know they're kind of right there with Cooey the whole way. I think they they got off a little bit to a slow start in that game, fell down 4-1, and then kind of clawed back in the second half, but weren't quite able to to overcome the deficit. And, and Cooley is really good with control. Like, he's clearly a control skip, and he, he basically wants to be one up with Hammer, and he fights all game to kind of angle it, angle the game so that he's throwing last rock with three seconds left to win the game. And at this point in the year, we should just be used to that. And that's, you know, basically what I think it was five seconds against, uh, against Mallet. So, <laughs> yes. you know, for Cooley, that's about an hour. <laughs> throwing time. But, um, you know, I think, like, the, the, probably for them, a slightly disappointing week. Like, the, the chatter that I heard of the Scottish camp is, oh, maybe this is our year to win it, win it all, because they haven't won since, since Dave Murdoch's uh, mm-hmm. victory over Martin a decade ago. So um, they were kind of clearly thinking medal for sure, gold medal hopefully. So a bit of a disappointment in terms of that. But again, um, a young team that's definitely going to be kind of a force to be reckoned with for the next, well, for the, for the, as long as they want, basically like for the next 20 years, possibly, but definitely for the next decade. Uh, the thing that was interesting or funny to me watching 
this team the few times that I, I did get to watch them against, you know, against the U.S., against Canada, and then some other random games that the WCF showed was watching Ross White on the bench next to Dave Murdoch. Um, whenever uh, Bruce and company were debating a shot, you could kind of see them on the bench uh, behind them and Ross White would gesture toward the ice like he had a great idea for how they should play this shot and then you'd see you'd see Dave just laugh and shake his head no <laughs> <laughs> and I really just wish I could have heard those conversations because it just, from just watching them in the background was just hysterical to me well to me like in the Cooley game uh, like the thing that cracked me up was they, they, it must have been an eight or nine. I can't remember what, but they were looking at a couple of options. They called their timeout. Their coach, Alan Hanna, comes out. And they were, they were looking at some pretty ridiculous shots to try and score two. And uh, eventually, Alan Hanna just tossed, said, Look, guys, you need to score here. Just take the draw to the button. Uh, but I can't, I'm not sure who said it, but like Alan Hanna's like, well, they were looking at kind of like driving in a corner guard or some kind of ridiculous raise angle in off thing to try and score two. And he's like, is that even there? And one of them goes, probably not, but it looks like it's fun. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, to, to be able to crack a joke like that and kind of a, a pressure situation like that, they're such a cool team. Like they're like, they're so yeah. for their age, they are really cool under pressure. Not just Bruce. I'd say the whole, the whole squad is just pretty even keeled demeanor. Um, you know, it's got to be intimidating. Even even someone has decorated Bruce Moa to kind of be going off on that stage playing Kevin Cooley. You never saw any signs of of nerves or or kind of emotionality or anything. They're a very even keel team, and you know, certainly there's multiple ways to be a great skip. We've seen a lot of fiery skips over the year too. But I tend to think that people who can kind of keep their cool under pressure and kind of keep showing up on the big stage, eventually they're gonna. They're going to punch through and win, win one or two big ones eventually, and I'm sure we'll see the Moet team uh, winning a world championship in the not too distant future. Yep, they got their they they got the Euro title this year. Um, obviously, for for them, probably a disappointing finish here at Worlds. Uh, the season obviously is not over, but um, yeah, they'll 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 be back. Um, well, we we assume so. They got to win the Scottish Championship, which is getting increasingly harder and harder. Um, but we, we know we will see them, uh, on the world stage again. So that, that covers the playoff teams. Do you want to go through the rest of the teams, um, in reverse order of finish real quick? A lot of these are, are younger teams, um, that are, that might be around for a while. Do you want to take them from the bottom of the top? Yeah. So I think Korea, they were, they were kind of in it all week, right? So they had five one point losses, pretty so they're Which in is it. really incredible <laughs> yeah and it's a bit similar to the latvian team right and th- this is where that wasn't the case you know five ten years ago like the bottom teams in the world would just get slaughtered and uh the korean team was in it like even against Kui and, and Adin, they were in it right so they're a good team the, the significant thing about this team finishing last is how it affects the asia pacific region as a whole so under the new WCF system, Asia Pacific gets two berths, North America gets two berths, Europe gets eight berths, and then whichever country, whichever region finishes last, which is the team that's finished in the last place of the previous year's worlds, loses one spot for that world. So 
the effect of Korea finishing last is the Asia Pacific only gets one direct berth into the world's next year. And so Japan, Korea, and China are all going to be fighting it out for that one world berth. And then their only other path for those countries is going to be through the world qualification event, which is going to be really tough next year. And that also has a knock-on effect because next year there's Olympic qualification points. There weren't this year, but you've got to be at the world's next year in order to get your Olympic qualification points. And um, the world qualifying event is going to be a lot harder. A lot of countries this year opted to not send their teams to that event because there weren't Olympic qualification points in the line next year. There's you know, only going to be two teams coming out of Asia fighting for two spots with everybody else in the world. So that's going to get harder and harder to even get to the Worlds, let alone the Olympics. Yeah, and that, uh, that world qualification event next year, not in the Asia-Pacific region, it'll be in Europe. So between Olympic points being on the line in Worlds and it being a, a easier um, travel schedule for those teams. You're not, I don't think you're going to see any teams skipping the world qualification event next year. Like we saw this, this last year. Um, I guess the only thing is China doesn't have to worry about it. They're already in the Olympics. Yeah. They, they don't have to worry about the Olympic qualification event, but part of what they want to do as a country is get their teams as much experience in these international events, which are, you know, you can play all the bond spiels you want, but, uh, you know, a world events, a different, different kind of beast. And so if China is not able to do that, that's also kind of going to have an impact on their development, right? So China is definitely going to be gunning to try to get back to worlds. They want to, they want a medal, right? They want to get, you know, on the podium, well, in every sport, but they want to definitely try and get on the podium in curling. At least their curling program's goal is that. So it's going to be a harder path for them and and Japan too, which you know made made playoffs, but uh, it's going to be tricky for them too, even to come back. So. And China, kind of a, I guess probably, a, I mean, definitely a disappointing outcome for them in this tournament. They only went uh, two and ten uh, with. Team Zhou, I also heard it pronounced as Zhao. It, it, it kind of went back and forth depending on who was calling the game for the WCF. Uh, and you also saw the alternate who's not normally on this team play a lot in Bade Shin. He, had, he, he definitely had the most experience of any of the five, so he wound up playing in a lot of the games, and I believe they had him at third most of the week. So a dif- disappointing finish for China as they start the quad uh, working toward the Olympics. Yeah, and then so yeah, we'll see. I mean, they may not be back next year. Like it's it's and that could have some kind of interesting knock-on effects too. So it's going to be harder and harder at these worlds going forward for sure. Uh, up next, also finishing two and ten was Norway. This was a mostly, I mean, well, it it was it was their their representative both at the. Um, world juniors and i believe most of them if not all of them were at the winter universiad they added stefan wallstad uh and he played in a lot of the games this week and they also finished two and ten so some you know tough start to the world's career for magnus ramsville yeah and you know the, the the game against cooey which i was able to watch a little bit of was was uh a bit of a curling lesson for them. Like, welcome to the world. Kui was, you know, uh, pretty pretty vicious in that game. Uh, I mean, 
they're a young they're a young junior team. They still have junior eligibility left, so it's. I don't think they should be disappointed with that result. I, in the preview, I didn't think they'd they'd be much of a threat for the playoffs, and they weren't. But getting that kind of experience now can pay off later on, right? And I think a lot of people forget before Brad, Brad Gushu was. Uh, you know, one of the best teams in the world. In his early 20s, he just kind of used Newfoundland as an auto birth for the Briar, and he'd, he'd kind of struggle there against the top teams too. Uh, but being able to go on that stage repeatedly and kind of keep getting um, quality quality experience, playing against quality opponents and kind of big events like this over time is what let Brad, let Brad Gooser to kind of develop into the curler he is. I'd, I'd say that that's a possible path for this young Norwegian team too. There's not much depth in Norway, to be frank, that that with Olsrud retiring, Wallstad's probably the favorite to become the next kind of big Norwegian team. But obviously this team's able, having won the playoffs with playdowns already this year, able to kind of match the Wallstad team shot for shot. I think a lot of it, just kind of from what I saw, was they were playing a, perhaps a little bit too aggressive against this caliber of competition. That, you know, calling an aggressive game when you're, you know, against junior teams where you're probably out shooting them. It's probably a pretty good strategy, but calling that against, you know, Kevin Cooey is going to result in a five bagger pretty quick. So that's just like strategy, you know, learning by tactics, learning kind of game management, learning how to play the game at the next level. But as long as they stick with it, I think we'll, we'll be seeing them as another team kind of making appearances for years to come and probably rising up at the table too over time. Uh, two notes on this team. It's comforting to know with Tomas Ulsrud's team retiring that Team Ramsfeld has their own Bompy. Their uh, their lead has the same uh, cherubic face as as Christopher Sfai. So it's comforting to know that um, that we have basically almost a carbon copy of Team Ulsrud coming into uh, coming into Men's uh, with this team. The other note: they kind of hacked off team Schuster by not shaking when they were down four going into 10 on the, the last, um, the last night of the round Robin. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, although I, I don't know if you can like expect to shake even in, even in the worlds. Right. So, you know, it's, it's always the, the losing team's option to concede when they want to concede. They probably just want to play out their, their world. So that's what they were doing. And, you know, it's not like playing an extra end is going to burn out team Schuster. So I don't think that's, that's that big a problem there. Yeah, maybe not. Uh, up next, uh, Team Netherlands finishes four and eight, and like we said, they had uh, they had some pretty big wins. They beat Scotland and the United States early on in the week, including the win over Scotland, where we saw uh, Wouter Goskins make a Kui esque run back to score three and beat Scotland in ten. Yeah, I, I think a better performance in terms of execution this year, in terms of quality wins. Unfortunately, not enough wins, like actually fewer wins than last year. And so not quite able to to take that next jump yet. So I think that's going to be their question. They're close. They're, as we've said, they're ranked 30th in the world. They're spending a lot of time in Canada playing on kind of competitive WCT events. They made it to the final, the tier two slam this year. They're, they're getting better year after year. They've, especially the front end's really young. So... Um, they've got a lot of time to build and develop. Their goal is 2022 Olympics. That'd be the first appearance by a Dutch squad. So that'd be kind of history making there. Uh, so I think they're, again, a team to watch for the future, but they're still not quite 
yet taking that step where they're able to kind of compete against the top teams in the world. They're, you know, but where there are these kind of events, they're kind of, you know, seventh through 10th kind of zone. And so the challenge for them is how do they make the jump to, to grab a playoff spot in the near future? Uh, interesting story that came out from Devin Hero from the CBC talking about the, a marketing agency in the Netherlands actively trying to find uh, Canadians with Dutch heritage that can compete for the Netherlands at the, at the world's level. What do you make of that? Uh, I mean, it's interesting. I, they're not the first association to to make that move. A lot of others have done that. Certainly, the Israeli curling team drew quite heavily on on kind of curlers from Canada. And uh, I'm trying to think. Oh, Hong Kong certainly draws quite heavily on Canadian curlers as well of Hong Kong descent. Uh, Chinese Taipei, who we played in, um, played in the World Junior Bs. They're all kind of Taiwanese Canadians. So you know, there's a lot of curling associations that draw on, you know, immigration communities, diaspora communities, primarily in Canada that kind of fill their squads. So I think it's one way to do it. It's, it's always kind of a bit of a trade-off, but you know, the, the, if the goal for the national association and for most of them is, is to get as good a performance as you can qualify for the Olympics. If there are Canadian curlers who are eligible that are going to help your national association take that next step, then it's certainly, certainly kind of one way to go about doing things. Uh, I'm not clear on how much that affects the the Van Dorp team. The, the, it doesn't seem like it's being something led by the Van Dorp team. It sounds like it's being led by a different group, but it's all kind of for the good in terms of growing curling in the country long-term, I'd say. Another team finishing at four and eight was Russia. Um, maybe... I, this is going to sound bad, but the least interesting team from this tournament, all of their wins came against teams below them, and then they lost to all the teams above them. So they just kind of ended up where they should have ended up. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I don't know. You were right. The Russian skip had nice hair. So that was the one thing I remember from the preview. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, with – with uh, oh, what's his name? With Kotsegan, right? We need somebody who's got like good, good long hair, so – this is kind of a good candidate for now. Yep. Uh, also finishing four and eight team Germany with a new skip. This is a, this is a younger team. You still have Ryan Sherrard, the former Canadian champion on this team. Everyone else is kind of, uh, you know, kind, kind of a youth movement for Germany led by Mark uh, Muscatavitz. Uh, the interesting thing about this team, they were funny to watch because you had Sherrard advice and whenever they would discuss shots, uh, Sherard would talk to Muscatavitz in English and Muscatavitz would talk to him in, in German and they would just communicate back and forth that way. And it was just kind of hysterical to me. Uh, the other thing was as someone who went to the University of Oklahoma, Ryan Sherard calling uh, Muscatavitz Mookie the whole tournament. That was pretty hilarious to me. But uh, a young team that did that did fairly well um, finished about where we thought they would finish at four and eight. Yeah, that's yeah, I think that's a good showing. And we had they had Benny Cap, uh, Andy Cap's kid. Uh, who's like I think sixteen mm-hmm. uh, got got to sneak into a game. So uh, by all accounts, I haven't seen him play yet, but by all accounts, he's the kind of the the German phenom, the kind of real deal. So okay. need to watch out for in the future. Uh, and he's already got world men's experience, and he's still a teenager. So and that was kind of a big theme this whole week. Is there's a lot of lot of movement towards the youth. So 
maybe not kind of coming out on top in terms of the final results, but a lot of these countries have gone young and probably, you know, using youth now to get them experience to try to, to be ready for 2022. So you're saying that shockingly, we're going to see worlds in the future with a cap and a Ramsfeld competing for medals. I would, I mean, I, yeah, I don't, I think the cap, here's, here's my rule of thumb and it's a bit, it's a bit harsh, but I think it's true is that most elite curlers had parents who were pretty competitive curlers. Maybe they weren't like the highest of the high, but there's, there's a thing about curling where, you, you know, it's a sport you pick up a little bit later in life, normally 12, 13, and there's a lot of nuance to pick up and you've kind of got your teenage years to really master that sport. Um, and so really it helps if you have a parent who's a pretty good competitive curler. And so if, if your dad is Andy Cap, you've probably got a leg up on a lot of other German curlers in terms of developing your game. Or if your dad was, if you're from the Ramsfeld clan, right? It's the same kind of thing. Uh, you're probably going to pick up a fair bit and be a pretty good curler at a pretty young age. So shouldn't be surprised um, that there's kind of generational passing down of curlers. You see that on even on Team Cooey with uh, BJ Neufeld. Dad, Denny Neufeld was a pretty good competitive curler. So uh, not that surprising. And I think that it's just kind of passing on from one generation to the next. Uh, the other thing about Team Germany is I'm looking forward to listening to the two girls in the game recap of the worlds to hear them talk about Team Germany and and Mark Muscatavitz, I imagine that they are going to be pushing for him to be a part of next year's uh, next year's calendar that uh, that curling news pu- puts out. So you're saying he's an attractive man? He's a handsome man, Jonathan. He's a handsome man. That's good. Yep. And I I I imagine that will be discussed on on the two girls in the game recap. Um, finally, and you saw kind of a big gap between the teams we just talked about and then the top seven teams, which included Italy, which was the team on the outside looking in. Jonathan, they deserved a better fate. They they really played their tails off. They were right there at the end. They wound up in the last, um, last round robin game in a win and you're in game with Team Scotland. Then they fell just short, but you could tell that this team has really put in the work. As you've noted before, they have a pretty good coach now, and man, they were they were extremely close to having their first playoff appearance at a Worlds. Yeah, and so this was yeah first playoff, just missing out on their first playoff appearances at Euros. They had their best result, I think, ever, but certainly best result in recent memory at Euros. Uh, their goal, they kind of got in through the Olympic qualification last year their goal this time is a direct berth so being one of the top seven teams uh that over on olympic qualification points and they've got they've got a shot at that like you know mm-hmm. i i wouldn't they'll, they'll probably be back next year and if they kind of keep posting of results where they're sixth or seventh that'll get them the points over the next two years of the cycle to to get uh to get right into the olympics so i think Italy was kind of one of those teams in the past that was kind of bottom of the table, also ran kind of an afterthought. But I think they will, you know, be in that tier the next couple of worlds qualifying for playoff spots. And certainly their goal has got to be direct spot to the Olympics. And it's, I think it's definitely plausible. And you look at it, unless this gap between the top seven and the rest of the world is closed, they should be looking at that, that direct qualification. You're going to have 
uh, seven countries are, are going to get in uh, without having to go to the Olympic qualifier. And right now they will probably be, I mean, in my mind, they're that seventh country. Yeah, I, although we've got to keep in mind that a few other kind of like good countries um, maybe didn't post their best results to send their strongest teams this year, right? So Norway, you know, with, with Ulster retiring, it's going to be interesting if Norway can keep their Olympic qualification slot open. If, if I, my, my hunch is it'll be Wallstad for the next two years, but but that they're going to be in a dogfight. And then there's a few other countries that are, are kind of kind of been on the cusp in the past. Like the Czech Republic's always been a classic bubble team. So the question is whether the Czech Republic can kind of uh, feel the team that challenges as well for that spot, get back to the world. So that's those are all kind of possibilities too. And then Denmark, right, which with Rasmus Sterner retiring, has taken a little bit of a step back, but they're, they're kind of a traditional Nordic curling power. And so we shouldn't assume that they're kind of completely gone either. The question is, can they feel the team like that? Uh, to get up to that level over the next couple of years. All right. Any final thoughts or any final things that you saw during this week that you want to talk about? All right. You want to talk about the Canada versus Schuster controversy? This was such a nothing story. <laughs> well, I was in Devin, Hur- Devin Hero wrote it up. So it's a Devin Hero story. It's... It- <sighs> Why, Jonathan, why do curling people get mad about the dumbest things? I don't know. <laughs> so you think, saying curling fans are too precious. And we should talk about what we're talking about first, just for everyone who's uh, not looped in on this, right? So, sure. There was, uh, I don't even, it was middle, it was middle of the week. It was like right before the U.S. played Canada in the round robin. And Schusty made just a nose hit. Um, he made a double and squeaked it through the you know, hole. Made, it, was a, it was a good shot. Not, yeah. not like a yeah. great shot. But it was an open nose hit. And Matt Hamilton made not a big deal about it, but just jokingly said, or said to Schuster, man, you make a great shot and you get like six claps. And John just goes, well, we're in Canada, <laughs> and that, and and somehow that blew up. Like I saw Canadian curlers mad online. I saw Canadian curling fans mad online, and it's just what? What do you want him to, to yeah. do? Yeah, I mean, what, what? What? It's what did he say that was wrong? <laughs> I mean, Canadians aren't going to cheer for the Americans. It's the same way with, you know, uh, American fans aren't going to cheer for Canada. If this was, you know, if going back to, you know, the World Cup of Hockey, um, you know, the games played in the U.S. Now, Canadian fans gobbled up tickets for that event, but you had Canadian, you had American fans rooting against Canada in that tournament. Like, don't get offended by it. It's a rivalry. We're, We're neighbors. We're it is it is what it is yeah i mean i think um well i think a couple of things i think one as i was saying before with the schuster team they don't really censor I th- I'm, I'm sure what well, we know because sometimes there's a few hot hot mic incidents by benny <laughs> benny heaps <laughs> while he's occasionally been caught saying the odd f-bomb on tv 
there was like a ha- there's an in between end break where WCF forgot to cut the Ben Hebert sound feed, and it was just a perpetual string of f bombs. So I'm sure when he's not mic'd up, he's you know swearing a lot more. And I'm sure there's a lot of other players oh, who less- just they're they're where they're on camera, they know they're on mic, they kind of they kind of watch what they're saying or thinking a little bit. I think the Schuster team. I- oh, last last day last day of the round robin. Baudation missed a shot and had just the most impressive, emphatic f bomb that you'll hear. <laughs> to the point that there's like this long pause, and then Jason Knapp just goes, "Sorry about that." <laughs> <laughs> so it's um, you know, we're, we're they they tend not to censor. They were kind of talking a little bit. They maybe they just forgot that they weren't Mike. So that's the first thing. Uh, the, it, I think that actually the backlash is bad because the thing that makes curling interesting as a as a TV sport is actually you get to hear the players' responses on the ice. So the more blowback there is, the less honest reactions you're going to get, the more boring your players are going to become. So that's kind of my first thought. I do think there's a bit of a Canadian inferiority complex at play here, speaking as the Canadian. So I can get away with saying this, whereas perhaps you can't. Uh, Ryan, <laughs> is that you know having grown up in Canada, you, you're growing up next to you know the most powerful country in the world, the biggest economy. It's got like all the flashing, exciting stuff going on. And Canada's you know smaller, bit colder, a bit more boring. And so Canadians do get like a little bit of an inferiority complex about that. And then curling is kind of one of the things that we are good at. I'll note that curling Canada. Like their feed, their Twitter feed kind of subtitle is, "This is our game, right?" So it's a little bit of ownership of the game. The Scots might have something to say about that, but um, there's a bit of like, "This is our game. We want to go out and use it to kind of overcome our inferiority complex by like you know crushing, crushing the Americans and crushing the world at a sport that we're good at, right?" And as we've said before in this podcast, that's just not curling in 2019 anymore, right? Like the rest of the world's caught up. There's no guarantee you're going to win. And the Schuster team's probably pretty unpopular in Canada for beating Coup last year and winning the gold medal, right? So I think that's part of it. I think the question is, what does this mean for the future of curling fandom? So I was at the U.S., the, the Worlds in Vegas last year, and definitely there were a lot of Canadian curling fans, and a lot of those Canadian curling fans were cheering misses by other countries. And, you know, as a curler first, the Canadian also, but as a curler first, I kind of thought that was, you know, a bit below the belt. Now, that may just be the Canadian, the, the kind of curling ethics in me, right? That you don't, you know, in fact, if you go read the curler's code of ethics at the front of the WCF rule book, you're never supposed to cheer a miss, right? You're never supposed to humble your opponent. You're never supposed to cheer a miss, right? You, you're supposed to kind of salute a good shot that's kind of built into the ethics of the game. It's interesting to me that the Canadian pride themselves as being the custodians of the game and Canadian curling fans have kind of become quite sucky, I'd say recently, at least on this front. So um, I think that's part of it. Like they, there were definitely a few times this week where there were misses by the USA and there were maybe not a majority of the audience, but there certainly were people there in the stands cheering. So Again, it's a question of what's going to happen with curling as it becomes a more professional sport. Is it the case that we now tolerate cheering misses like we do perhaps in other sports, and then it just becomes another team sport like any other one? Or do we need to kind of remind the, the curling fans that 
while you should cheer for your own team's makes, you shouldn't be kind of cheering for the other team's misses or booing when the other team makes a shot. And I think that's that seems to be part of what's going on here. And for whatever reason, Schuster's kind of caught in the dynamic that your average Canadian curling fan kind of doesn't think too much about that. So that that was my take on what part of what's going on is you're caught in a hot mic. And so a lot of the social media fans got upset and then B part of it is there is a, a bit of a Canada USA rivalry, which I actually thinks good for curling. But the question is, Personally, I don't think the Schuster team was in the wrong. I'd say it was the fans, probably not a majority, but certainly a significant chunk that were kind of cheering for misses and perhaps not conducting themselves in the most sportsmanlike way. Tyler George had a great point on Twitter, and it's that this really only applies to one tournament a year. It's just whenever... Honestly, it's only whenever the worlds are in Canada, because when the worlds are in Europe or anywhere else, there's just honestly not a lot of fans there. It really only applies for the world championships, and it only applies when it's in Canada. Yeah, so it's, it's well, they, they also applied a little bit at the worlds last year in Vegas. Yeah, because, well, yeah, because there was a lot of Canadian fans in Vegas. But yeah, mo- the majority of curling games are in clubs where any fans that are there are one kind of insane for going and two behind a pane of glass for the slams, you know, you're, you're not wearing your country's flag. So there you have people who are cheering for, yeah, their favorite curlers, but they're not really cheering against anyone. It's only when the worlds are a either in Canada or a, somewhat cheap flight away from Canada that this is really going to matter. So what it, it's just such not a big deal. <laughs> <laughs> I guess not. It really isn't a big deal. In terms of what the comments by Schuster or the fan reaction or any of it, the comments were not offensive at all the overreaction was an overreaction. And at the end of the day, every, you only have to deal with this every two years. Yeah, I guess so. I'm just kind of struck by it. The the thing that struck me last year is the other two pretty large and vocal fan bases besides the U S obviously was um, Sweden and Scotland. The Swedes adopted like a a European football, or as you would call it, soccer club mentality, right? They were all in their colors and they had like chants and songs and all that. And then the Scots also kind of had their, they had like soccer chants, a football chants kind of going on, where it was like super positive after a shot was made, they'd kind of sing out a chant for the player or whatever. And it was kind of a positive vibe, but neither of those two sections were kind of booing the misses. And actually, I liked that vibe better. Like they were... There was passion and enthusiasm was positive, whereas the Canadians were, I think, maybe it was just the bitterness of kind of missing out on the podium at the Olympics or something. But it was it was kind of just like a, a bit surly, I thought. Huh. Interesting. Well, I don't know. It, it's really just not, not a bit. The, the, mo- the most interesting thing to me about it was in Devin Harrow's story was Schuster's quote that just said, you know, I just want people to like me. <laughs> which you know there are some people that they don't care what anyone thinks about them and it's just it it strikes me that 
Schuster just really wants to be liked by people and tries to conduct himself in a way that makes people like him. And it's, I, I don't know, those, those kind of people are also kind of endearing to me where they like, they just want to be liked. <laughs> it's so sad. I'm sorry. It's like, I, I, I mean, <laughs> the Schusty biopic, whenever they make it, is going to be epic because I think it's one of those things where you can tell he wants to be liked and you, you are the kind of person who really wants to be liked and because they want to be liked so much, that actually makes people not like them so much. I think that's unfortunately part of the yeah. Schuster dynamic. That, and he, he's got this habit of just... Like, you know, before winning the gold medal, we all know about like kind of the backlashes at previous Olympics. There was also that incident with the displaced stone uh, kind of in the worlds a few years ago where they got they got booed there. Like for whatever reason, it's like he's like a magnet for these weird controversies, which I just don't get because he's, he's actually is an extremely nice guy. He's just he says what he thinks, which, you know, sometimes if you say what you think and you're honest people don't like you for that right yeah i mean he's he's an honest guy he's a nice guy i think there's a lot of people in curling that are like that not all of them are skips he's probably one of the few skips that is that tries to be as genuine as possible and doesn't have this super cool demeanor when he's on the ice but i don't know though the whole thing was just i'm glad that it didn't i'm glad that it ended like as soon as the U.S. Canada round robin game was over, the whole thing was over. So that, that's the one thing that I'm kind of happy about. And now here we are. Talking. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, it was good. I think I think it's a good week overall for the Schuster team, and uh, hopefully they won't. Uh, they will. I mean, I would like to say they won't court controversy in the future. But if there's any team they're going to be talking about for some dumb controversy, it will probably be them again, just because this seems to be the Schuster curse. That's the cross that John Schuster bears. Yeah, they, they do. They just stumble backwards <laughs> into stuff like that. And even though they don't really mean to attract stories like this, they just kind of yeah. stumble. So I kind of, uh, anything else from this week or do we want to call it a day since we have, since we've been sitting here talking for a while? <laughs> Yeah, no, I think that's good. It was a, it was a good Worlds, and uh, you know, it was a, g- a great event. And next year, it's going to be in Glasgow. So, hey, you're going to get to go, right? If the curling gods are with me and and my personal finances and my vacation days, then I would like to go to Glasgow. So we'll see how that all works. How long out. of a drive is that for you? I would just fly, but it's like a six, seven hour drive, but there's a direct flight from Southampton for pretty cheap. So I'd probably just do that. Uh, So the season's not over. Uh, In fact, very soon after this is posted, the players championship gets underway as most of a lot of these men's players are going straight from Lethbridge to Toronto to, to play in that. Uh, So the season keeps going. We've got that event, the champions cup and the curling world cup grand final are kind of the big three events that are that are still on the calendar as well as the mixed doubles world championship which we will get into later uh as a lot of big names are, are gonna be in that you've also got 
the event that is near and dear to our hearts, Jonathan, the USA Curling Arena Nationals coming up in, in early May. So hopefully we'll get to talk about all of that. Um, just some podcast-related notes. We have a new host. We are now, we moved off of SoundCloud and now we are on Blueberry. So hopefully we've set it up where you're not going to have to change any settings. And if you subscribe to this podcast, it'll just automatically flip over to the new host. Uh, the other exciting bit of information, we have a website now. So you can go to www rocksacrossthepond.com to find all of our content as well as how to subscribe to this show. And again, if you haven't subscribed, please do so. Uh, the, the best thing that you can do for us is if you've enjoyed this show to tell a friend or even just steal their phone and download the podcast onto it. That, uh, that helps us as well. Uh, you can find us online. You can find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We're on Instagram. We're on Facebook. And you can always email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, uh, so much for listening, and we will talk to you again real soon.